on WHMP. Welcome to Talks the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we hope to be joined in just a few minutes by Amkar Shabazz, who is Professor of African American Studies, Africana Studies at UMass Amherst, and deeply involved in the fight the struggle for reparations in Amherst. We also hope to be joined by Michelle Miller, who is an Amherst town councilor, who has been involved very, very forcefully and directly in this struggle for reparations and a program of reparations in the town of Amherst. I am particularly interested in this because I am on and have been appointed to the commission in Northampton to study uh, racialized harms, usually referred to as the Reparations Commission, and I'm hopeful that that will be a productive and I think it will be a very fruitful endeavor in Northampton as well. At the first meeting of the Reparations Commission last week, and this was interesting for me because I've never served on a public public body like this before, and therefore everything that we talk about is public and part of the uh, public record subject to the open meeting law and the public records requirements in Massachusetts as well. So there's no speaking out of school because everything is in school. And at that meeting, we discussed reviewing and uh, considering all that has happened in Amherst because Amherst is considerably ahead of the uh, uh, of Northampton in terms of this study of reparations. And I'm really interested to find out what Amherst has concluded. There will be a report uh, from Amherst that we will have the ability to study and consider uh, in Northampton. And I am really looking forward to that because I'd like to see what this effort in Amherst has yielded, uh, what the specific recommendations are, how much it will cost, what the money will go for. Um, this will be, I think, significant for the considerations of the uh, commission in Northampton, although maybe something very, very different will happen. I don't know. Uh, again, we've only had the first meeting and the commission will meet over the next uh, 12 to 18 months to uh, create and uh, fulfill its to create the uh, uh, and write the report that the City Council's resolution and ordinance requires. And I think that this will be, for me, a very, very enlightening and I think uh, uh, instructive and educational endeavor, as I hope it will be for the community of Northampton as this commission undertakes its responsibilities. So uh, that is what we hope to discuss in further detail this morning. And I will see if we can have uh, Professor Shabazz and Councillor Miller uh, join us on Skype in just a few moments. I'm wondering, Buzz, if you have some thoughts about uh, how these reparations has played out and what you think about what has occurred in Evanston, whether you think that's a good model, your thoughts about this? Uh, Bill, I think, uh, yes, I do think uh, what's happened in Evanston is a good model. And I'm proud of our local communities that are having these very uh, serious and very dis uh, illuminating discussions about reparations. At the same time, I don't mean to sort of deflect from the subject, but I can't stop thinking about the discussions 
that are appropriately happening about reparations while we're seeing racially motivated mass shootings happening uh, and, and we see the duplicity, the hypocrisy of uh, Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida sort of uh, heading to the rally, the vigil uh, that was being held uh, to mourn the loss of three lives um, just because of the color of their skin by a white supremacist who had a manifesto declaring his hatred. At the same time, DeSantis is standing there deploring violence when he has uh, called anybody woke who wants to even talk about critical race theory or teach it in the schools. Uh, it, it's shocking to me that while we're talking about reparations for past injuries and remedying uh, the injustice, we're just watching it rage right now at the same time those discussions are taking place. It's powerful. Bill, we, you still there? Did we lose Bill Newman? Uh, well, I guess, I guess. Am I still on the call, or should I call uh, back? On no, the hang on, Amilcar. We are live. We were just talking with Bill. Uh, he was talking about reparations and the fact that he's on the committee here in Northampton. He was talking about um, Amherst and the strides that you've made. He asked me for my thoughts. Um, I don't know whether you just heard uh, my thoughts. Yes, I did. And I, I'd love to hear, while we're waiting for Bill to sort of come back to us uh, live from out of state, he's on, he's with us virtually, uh, I'd love to hear you talk about Ron DeSantis addressing that vigil. Can we get Councillor Miller as well? Uh, please. Is, is, is Councillor Michelle Miller with us? That's what I was checking. But at any rate, I can't speak to the, to the Florida uh, situation. You know, the... Uh, the issue of um, ongoing harms is one of the things that uh, really is a challenge uh, to um, that that reparations is designed is trying to address. We talk about the arc, and we talk about the first step of things is the acknowledgement of harm, of the past harm, of the ongoing harms of structural racism. That's the acknowledgement part of the arc. Then comes restitution. Then comes repair. Then comes uh, how do we actually recreate the communal life in a way that promotes justice? Well, let, let's finally, can, we, can I stop you there, Amakar? Let's sure. let's unpack that. Number one, yep. restitution. You mean making people whole? Is that what you mean by restitution? That's the that's the language, general language with it, and and that then requires you know, really a, a careful uh, understanding of the harms, how the harms are still manifest today. That, so for example, with Dr. William Darity's research, he points out the wealth gap. So that goes towards understanding the cumulative uh, effects and ongoing effects of the harm, the way we have the wealth gap. We have scientists that look at the, the health gap, uh, health inequities, um, that that disproportionately affects, such as um, uh, black black women and um, you know the uh, uh, problems during pregnancy and and uh, uh, prenatal uh, needs for inequities in that area, uh, infant mortality and, and the like. Uh, but then, as you look at all the gaps and you look at what does it take to make things whole, to to repair, to you know the restitution. 
um, which is not only monies, but changes in policies, changes in actual policies that are necessary. Then we, we, we cover that, that area of, of the arc. And then final is closure. And this comes to the DeSantis piece. You know, you can't have closure when there are still ongoing harms, when you're still uh, doing things, for example, in the educational arena, rather than, again, promoting uh, a level playing field and promoting a situation where African-American, uh, the gaps, the achievement gaps, academic gaps for, for African-Americans begin to close, you're instead, instead doing things that exacerbate problems that that widen problems and so you can't get to closure without um, uh, the acknowledgement without the repair but also without ending the ongoing harms uh, that it, it, I, it is just so true at the same time while we're, we're talking about not being able to achieve closure we have uh ramaswamy who is running for president uh running for the domination of the republican party for president, who is openly uh, attacking uh, Ibram X. Kendi uh, and critical race theory, and talking about that uh, what a racist uh, Kendi is, who is, I think, one of the primary thinkers and and so intelligent in his uh, what I everything I've read, including his book, which is escaping me, the name of which is escaping me right now, but uh, uh, about uh, anti-racism and racism. It's so illuminating, and I don't care who you are, you just have to read it, and the logic is so impeccable and clean. And yeah, Ramaskami is, 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 uh, is, is dismissing. But you know, Buzz, the way, the way I look at that, that's, that, that's a good sign. Uh, you know, it's a sign that, you know, black study scholars like, like Ibram Kendi and others are, are making inroads, you know, and, and not just with black people, but making inroads into public, the public mind with, with logic, not with guilt tripping, not with just hyperbole and, and rhetoric, but with a, a logical analyses and interpretations of the facts of the historical facts. And so with that, it's, it's, it's to me uh, an indication that we're doing our job, we're doing good work, we're having an impact. And they like, and, and the DeSantis crowd, they like to call it indoctrination, right? They like, that, that's what they like to refer to it. But let me tell you, the young people that I've taught now for almost four decades uh, at, at the higher ed level, um, good luck with that indoctrination. <laughs> you know, I mean, with no guns and no real money to buy people off to, to think your way, you're just doing it on what? Just on hyperbole, just on rhetoric. You're able to to indoctrinate people into into thinking things that that don't make sense is the way a DeSantis would argue. No, baby, it doesn't work like that. If people are 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 coming around. To, to the works of, uh, of a Kendi like stamped from the beginning or or you know how to be an anti-racist if they're if they're being struck by by uh, uh, important work of, of uh, people like Kimberly Crenshaw and and her writings as a legal scholar in in terms of analyzing American law and jurisprudence according to critical race theory they're not coming around to it because somebody has has bamboozled their minds uh, with a bunch of rhetoric they're coming around to it because they uh, it, it makes sense. It's logical. I, I appreciate that. Uh, 
Professor uh, Amokar Shabazz, but at the same time, uh, we're talking about, and Bill was making the point uh, about reparations, and you were saying that one of the one of the phases that we have to achieve is closure, and at the same time, we're seeking to achieve closures. As you point out, this is ongoing racial animus and discriminatory policies and attacks on his on history and his, and those historians like yourself and like Professor Kendi who are trying to uh, illuminate for us anti-racism versus racism in our history. It, it's very troubling when you think about reparations as a solution when we can never achieve closure as long as people are being slaughtered in Florida. Mm. Right? This is real. This is real. And, and and again, we recognize this when we, um, you know, even here locally. And when I look at the video of the traffic of the of the stop around what a tail light or something, mm, North headlight, Canada, yeah, just, you know. And I'm just like, okay, you if you were really trying to do a good thing with somebody, you know, why why couldn't there have been some de-escalation and 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 work on you know getting a translator or somebody that could could just talk to this person that. That your obvious your your stop is obviously you know uh, uh, got them very nervous and uh, but instead of interpreting when they say you know you didn't stop like I have stopped I'm st- I've stopped what do you mean I haven't stopped I'm stopped I'm talking to you now and like yeah but you didn't stop and 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 there's a like a communication barrier there and then instead the next thing becomes let me let me drag them out let me let me throw them on the ground and let let's and this becomes all you know lawful police protocol and interaction we're we're not going to close inequities and close problems if we if if we don't that's why i say it's a policy piece too it's not just money it's changing our way of doing business it's changing our way of life and we are in our black in the valley segment our weekly segment which we all value so much with with professor emilcar shabazz we're we talking need bill we need bill's voice on this well, i'd like we're to see get how it. he thinks this I was provoking him there about Northampton. And we're going to and take I a break. And... Back. <laughs> We've got Bill back. I was going to take a break and then bring you back, Bill. That makes oh, sense. Okay. Let's right, do well, that. Let's take, the, let's, let's take that break. And when we come back, we're going to find out what reparations is going to look like in Amherst. Is the report out? What is happening? And how will it help Northampton consider reparations as well? We'll be right back. Until we get our shit up. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate. On the one hand, I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. 
Comedy as a Weapon presents Comedy Cause 5, a comedy night fundraiser Saturday, September 9th at the Academy of Music in Northampton. Join comedians like Kim DeShields, Timothy Lovett, Janet McNamara, and HBO's Kevin Lee. Comedy Cause 5, the back-to-school edition at the Academy of Music in Northampton. Doors open at 7.30. Tickets cost $25. All the proceeds will support the Care Center. Visit ComedyWeapon.com for more information. Sponsored by Sage Housing, Inc. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. There are days where you just want to hang a sign on the door. Gone fishing. But you're not going to get a line in the water today. So you go to Paul and Elizabeth's, which may be the next best thing. Order the fish and chips. It's tempura style fish. The batter's so light and airy. The chips are fresh cut in Paul and Elizabeth's kitchen. Have you tried Paul and Elizabeth's Cajun sampler? Shrimp, scallops, and cod with a spicy etouffee sauce. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation on this Black in the Valley segment with Africana Studies professor at UMass Amherst, Amilcar Shabazz. And we are joined by Michelle Miller, who is an Amherst town counselor in District 1, who was the co-founder of Reparations for Amherst. She originally came to Amherst some 25 years ago and as a student at UMass Amherst. I would like to ask you both, maybe Linda, we could go to you and then we'll pick up with uh, Professor Shabazz. Um, where does the uh, situation stand in Amherst with regard to a report from the Reparations Committee? What do you anticipate the process will be at this point? And what can you tell us about what the Reparations Committee and Amherst has concluded, if that is uh, sub- is that appropriate for subject appropriate subject for public discussion at this time. Help us understand where Amherst is at, please. Sure, thank you for having us. Uh, So we are in the process now of finishing up our report and it is uh, beginning to circulate just a draft um, to to some folks for review. Um, We expect the report to hit uh, in probably the first, maybe the first two weeks of September, and then we'll be presenting it to the town council on October 2nd. So that will be uh, sort of the the presentation and, um, you know, the full release of the report at that time. Can you give us some sense of what the content of the report is apt to be? I take it that all of the meetings have been public so that we're not talking out of school here. Tell us where this is headed. Yeah, uh, the report um, includes uh, funding. So, so we went through a pretty extensive um, con- consultation with the Black community and with the broader community here in Amherst. And through that consultation, which included uh, multiple listening sessions, a survey, uh, I think we had close to 700 participants in the survey, uh, we uh, we came to some conclusions about funding priorities, and I could I could say a little bit about those. So um, we've 
determined that youth empowerment and youth programming is a top funding priority. We've determined that affordable housing and home ownership, um, as well as economic, you know, business and entrepreneurial training. Um, those are sort of the three uh, funding priorities that came out of that consultation process. In addition, we have um, recommended certain mechanisms in the report that will allow for uh, the work to go on when our committee is, is finished here next month. So we recommend a successor body, for example, that uh, will work with the black or, or be in consultation on a continuous basis with the uh, black community in order to determine what what sorts of reparative initiatives uh, the community would like to see brought forward and approved. Uh, Town Councilor Michelle Miller, you just mentioned that there was a survey of some 700 people. Who are the 700 people? Uh, well, we had a, it was a, it was a really, uh, you know, it was anonymous, so we don't know who, who the individual people were, but we certainly feel uh, that there was a diverse participation. Uh, there were a hundred folks that identified as black um, and as residents in Amherst of that, um, of that 700, which you know, we, our goal was to reach as many black residents as possible. And I think through the various panels, whether it was the larger listening sessions or the smaller focus groups and the survey, um, I feel confident that we have, we have done that. And it's also possible that when the report is published, uh, we'll hear from more folks and that's, and we're, we're looking forward to that. We, we hope to hear from more folks. We hope this report will be a, a way to engage uh, with more people in the community. Let me turn from Michelle Miller, if I might, to Professor Anilkar Shabazz. Uh, what Town Councilor Michelle Miller has just told us that there are three areas that the report is going to focus on, housing, youth programs, and entrepreneurial training. Those are huge undertakings. How is the town of Amherst going to address that and how does that address the uh, historical injustices in the town of Amherst? Can you help us understand? Those two very separate questions, but I'd appreciate your perspective, Professor. Very quickly, the, the key to understand is uh, Amherst is a college town. In fact, when we did our study of the black population and who, who really are, where, who are the black people in town? And I think in Northampton, y'all can take a cue from this because when I've heard your, your public comments and things like, are there any black people in Northampton? Where are the black people? So you might want to, you know, consult our study for some uh, role, some guidance on that. Um, we found a, the, the largest bulk of it are students. It's the student population that comes in between September and, uh, and May. September through May. That's more than half of the black population that comes in. And we did it by uh, uh, looking at the census down to the actual uh, 2020 census where people are living, as well as something called the American Community Survey. Um, and, and, and so obviously then with young people, be, young black people being the majority of the black population, it struck it struck us and, and from everything we 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 heard so much that's the real interest what are we doing to to uh, uh, to welcome that group to make that group uh, whole 
in terms of their experience and their pursuit of their of their lives into adulthood. Um, housing, you know, we have a lot of housing initiative. This is one of the big areas you've had, you know, uh, counselors on and, and people on from Amherst. This is one of our big things. How do we make Amherst a affordable, livable place for more people, uh, diverse people to be a part of it? So we'll, you know, the way we achieve these things, Bill and Buzz, is that it's through partnerships. It's through and through uh, uh, developing policies with a more expanded vision and then drawing more of the, the many of the existing partners in on how to how to do this work in a more parative way. Uh, Professor and uh, Michelle Miller, the same question to you both. Evanston, which is the model a lot of people look at because it was the first large municipality to engage in a reparations program. Uh, focused on housing. And there were a lot of good reasons for focusing on housing in Evanston, including the very well-documented redlining in that city. Uh, and over time, that program has evolved and now involves uh, direct cash payments. I'm wondering if you could tell us whether that model has influenced and is influencing Amherst uh, or not. So let me start with you, Michelle Miller, because you were involved very early on as the co-founder of Reparations for Amherst. Tell us about how that Evanston model has or has not uh, influenced Amherst. I think everything that Evanston has, has done has influenced Amherst um, in some way. And, you know, maybe similar to Northampton, we hope we'll be watching Amherst and, and watching Evanston and, and everyone else doing it. It's, it's sort of, it's a situation where it, there is, this is, uh, it's not a new conversation, but these uh, municipal initiatives are new um, to some degree. And so we're all sort of linking arms and, um, and in Evanston, as you said, um, they had very well documented redlining and there was a good reason why they chose housing as their first initiative. But I think what a lot of people don't recognize is that it's really a very small percentage of the total that they have available for reparations. So um, we're sort of looking at what is our pot here. We have a $2 million commitment from the town. We have um, in the report outlined other ways uh, that we hope um, that we can expand that pot. And so we have to sort of know what it is here in this community that we have to work with. And then of course we look to other communities and, and learn and learn from, you know, there are, um, there are, there are challenges to any initiative that any community might pursue and of course there are are great benefits as well so i think the answer is yes <laughs> um and uh we'll continue to watch uh and and i'm sure be impacted and influenced by by the work in evanston could you give us maybe i should turn to professor shabazz to bring him in on this part of the conversation can you give us some idea of what what kind of money, what, what amount of money we're talking about in terms of the town of Amherst uh, expending public funds towards this effort on reparations? Millions, millions, <laughs> millions and, and millions. And over this, years, and, over the years. And more immediately? I could, 
Dr. Shabazz, can I just jump in? I, I think it might be interesting to listeners um, that the way that we are recommending this fund of two million that has already been committed by the council, um, we are recommending that it be set up as an endowment. So um, we will use the investment income off of the two million to pursue initiatives on an annual basis. Um, and that way we know that the, the, the fund itself will have a, a long lasting power. And we hope that as we continue to educate the community about the importance and, and about the importance of reparations, we hope that the support will grow. And therefore, um, whether it be through the public funding or private funding that we hope, uh, you know, will begin, will, will grow that that fund but for right now it's two million that we have as a commitment from the town and the two commitment two million dollar commitment as i understand will be funded at two hundred thousand dollars a year over 10 years am i right about that or do i misunderstand we are recommending an acceleration uh we have come to the conclusion that we need some meaningful funds and we need them now um, and so we are recommending in our report uh, various ways that we would like the town to consider accelerating the growth and, and to fully um, fund the million. Okay. And just before we leave, let me just make sure I understand. The report will go to town council when for its approval? Uh, the report will be published prior to October 2nd, but the, the date to tune in, if, if interested, is October 2nd at the Town Council meeting. Okay. We leave it there. Professor Amalkar Shabazz, Town Councilor Michelle Miller, thank you both so very much. We really, really look forward to having you back to continue this discussion. Do you want to make one final uh, note before we leave, Professor Shabazz? Just give you an idea how this ripples out even beyond what we're what we've been talking about here. So there's a drive to name the old chapel on the UMass campus for the first black professor to ever be uh, hired full time at at uh, in the, he was hired in the 1940s. His name is Dr. Edwin Driver, and there is a move afoot to rename it the Edwin Driver Old Chapel. And so this is the kind of thing that begins to decolonize Amherst that people are just waking up and looking at ways to, to, to decolonize Amherst through, through uh, black reparations. Professor Amilcar Shabazz, Town Councilor Michelle Miller, thank you both so very much. Thank you. We must begin to tell our young. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Business is on hold for the Amherst School Committee. With the most recent resignation from member Peter Demling, the committee no longer has a quorum. Currently, only two seats out of five are filled after Demling, Allison McDonald, and Ben Harrington all stepped down over toxic conditions. Superintendent Michael Morris is also departing in what was called a mutual decision. Irv Rhodes, acting chair, tells Mass Live the schools will continue to operate, but he doesn't expect the Amherst Committee to be able to function until October. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner is facing one challenger in the upcoming election, City Councilor Virginia DeSorger. 
Mayor Wiedegartner says that she feels she has a good track record to campaign on. Well, I am completely focused on my campaign. I'm not overly concerned about uh, the competitor's campaign. Mayor Wiedegartner spoke about some of her biggest accomplishments. The crown jewel, in my mind, is the skate park because we didn't have a skate park. And that was one of my initial campaign promises. Addressing a staffing shortage at the Greenfield Police Department was another hurdle for Wiedegartner's administration. I mean, the chief always would prefer to get people who were fully trained and just needed to go through the city of Greenfield Police Department training. But sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. A mayoral debate will take place on Tuesday, October 3rd at 7 p.m. between Wiedegartner and Virginia DeSorger. An investigation in an apartment building in Hatfield Sunday night led to one person being taken away by ambulance, their current medical status unknown. Police officers were conducting an investigation at 151 West Street, some armed with rifles. More updates to come as information on the investigation is released. Your 22 News forecast, partly sunny for today. Some showers possible tonight, 79 for the high. For tomorrow, mostly cloudy with showers and a high of 79. Mom, tell us about Tom Lake. A woman and her three daughters gather at the family's northern Michigan orchard where, while picking cherries, the daughters beg their mom to tell stories of the famous actor she long ago shared a stage and a romance with. Mom dishes, and the daughters soon find themselves examining their own lives, reconsidering the world and everything they thought they knew. Tom Lake, new from powerhouse author Ann Patchett. Pick up Tom Lake at Northampton's independent bookstore, Broadside Bookshop. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work an active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. Smith Academy in Hatfield is accepting school choice applications now. With an average class size of 10, Smith Academy supports all students. They offer more than 20 clubs, 8 AP courses, 14 sports teams, work study, and internships, and free dual enrollment at HCC and Smith College. Computer science for all students. With a graduation rate of over 95%, most college bound, Smith Academy can prepare you for the next step. No cost to apply or attend. Call us or go to HatfieldPS.net and schedule a tour today. In a world of chaos, Armstrong and Getty Show cuts through the fake news of the day and gets straight to the common sense heart of the burning issues listeners really care about. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Armstrong and Getty. Be informed and involved. Listen to Armstrong and Getty weekdays from 6 to 9 p.m. right here on 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. I think that many listeners are aware that the Healy administration made an announcement recently that is of enormous potential significance for higher education in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and for people throughout the Commonwealth of Massachusetts who do not have a college degree, who will now be able to attend college for free so that they can continue their life's journey with the 
ability to say, yes, I have this degree, I have this key to a better economic future. We have with us today, Linda Desjardins, who is the Director of Financial Aid at Greenfield Community College to help us understand what Mass Reconnect, what the program is, what it does, and why it matters so very much. Linda Desjardins, thank you so very much for being with us. Mass Reconnect, what is it? So, Bill, you explained it really well in your introduction. This is exciting, new, innovative program that is going to allow residents in Massachusetts who are 25 years and older to come to community college and have their bill paid, their tuition and their fees, and it also allows a stipend for them for course supplies and books. This is absolutely impactful and life-changing for these students. Oh, tell us why. Okay, so, you know, community colleges have always been the affordable option, and we're so lucky in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to have 15 great community colleges for our residents. Oftentimes, though, it still can be a difficult journey to maneuver, and access has sometimes been blocked because of affordability. A lot of our low income to middle income wage earners have been left out of financial aid dollars in the past, and this is changing. This is opening up financial aid and affordability for those two million people across the Commonwealth. Two million? Two million people, yeah, they did a study. So, you know, the state has all of this census data, they have a lot of demographic data, and they're able to determine on average that about two million people across the common state, across the Commonwealth, have um, not attained a college degree or certificate yet. So this is going to open up doors for people who may be delayed going to college, didn't think college was right for them, maybe said, you know, I wish I could go, but I have to pay for it and I'm not sure how I'm going to do that now. And they want to change a career. The door is open for everybody now. Tell us a bit more about how that will work, if you would, please. I assume that most of these people are out in the workforce trying to make a living, support a family, and support themselves, of course, as well. I mean, is, this, is the idea here for Mass Reconnect that these people will be able to attend community college uh, at night? Uh, I mean, how does this work as a practical matter? Right. So first and foremost, it is a financial aid program. And for many years, I have said, if the Commonwealth would fund financial aid, students will come for free, and that's exactly what's happening. So this is a financial aid program. First and foremost, students do have to fill out the federal application for student assistance to see what they're eligible for. And as a last dollar program, Mass Reconnect fills the gap between what you receive and the cost that you have to pay. And the great thing about it being for community colleges, as Buzz knows, we have these really flexible programs and very flexible hours. Some community colleges will have weekend programs. We always carry night programs. We run programs and class offerings over the summer. So it really is a nice, flexible option, besides being an affordable option for many students. And when you enter a community college, I mean, your options to transfer are unlimited. You have every availability to transfer to any school or program that you may be interested in once you, you finished here. Before I turn this over to Buzz, I would like to understand this. Is the goal here generally to allow these new students, these returning students, to achieve a four-year degree after 
they achieve the associate's degree at a community college, or is the idea more that this would be a two-year associate's degree and people will leave with vocational talents that they will then be able to achieve a different uh, job in a new field? Explain that to us. Sure. So the emphasis from the Healy administration was to improve workforce development. But, you know, it's very flexible. So it allows for whatever that student and that person wants to do. If you want to come in, you want to get a credential and a certificate to re-enter the workforce fairly quickly, there's options. It is for your first associate's degree. So um, that's fantastic. That can lead you into the workforce once you're finished. But it can also be if you're planning to get a four-year degree, because of course a four-year degree is also going to open up your opportunity for employment in the future. So even though the emphasis was on workforce development, um, it's a flexible program for students entering. I just want to make sure I understand that when they talk about workforce development and the uh, involvement of the community colleges, is that is that based on an associate's degree, a two-year degree that brings with it the talent and training in specific fields? Exactly. What yes. are those fields? So for instance, we have associates degrees in engineering. Nursing is a very popular one. Early childhood education, physical therapy, um, rest, you know, any health field really, um, entry-level therapy, radiology, uh, firefighters, paramedics. Yeah. That's Buzz? Not to mention the arts. We also have the arts, but that is very true. Uh, Linda Desjardins, I, I wanted to uh, ask you. I know that the the administration, the Healy administration, this initiative was twenty million dollars that was given to the Department of Higher Education in partnership with community colleges. What happens if the twenty million dollars is exhausted because those two million residents, of Massachusetts, over twenty five? who don't have college degrees all apply for our 15 community college admission. Is there more money than the 20 million available? Right now, um, the budget that's put forth is capped at 20 million. But of course, um, later in the year, in December, um, the Healy administration will have another budget adjustment. And if more money is needed at that time, requests can be put in. Um, as this program is new, I mean, there's been a lot of a buzz about it. Um, and students are learning about it. Um, right now, I'm not getting a sense of real um, immediacy from the Department of Higher Education that we're going to run out of money this first year. So, and, and you know, and if we get close to doing it, I think that's a good thing because that shows that there's a need. And now we know what that need is. And next year's appropriations, we can budget better for upcoming needs. Uh, is this Mass Reconnect program going to change the demographics of Greenfield Community College, of Holyoke Community College? It is a program that makes community college affordable, free, in terms of tuition and fees and the like for people 25 and older. Does that change who the community or what the community college uh, population, the demographic is and will be? You know, I think if anything, Bill, it's probably going to improve and increase our enrollment rates. The average age of a student at a community college, and I can speak specifically for GCC, is 27. And I don't think that that's all that um, outside the norm for any of the other community colleges. 
Buzz? Yeah, Linda Desjardins. I, I wanted to ask you, when I first, I, I had the extreme pleasure of, well, getting to know you during my 17 years of teaching full-time at Greenfield Community College. Uh, it was an important part of my life that I will never forget. Uh, the reason why I'm mentioning that is over the course of my tenure there, I saw Greenfield Community College, like all the other community colleges in the Commonwealth and throughout the country, begin to suffer from under-enrollment problems. Historically, during periods of high unemployment, people would, uh, when, when there weren't many jobs, people would go to college. That was the opportunity that they had to sort of uh, build their credentials so that they would be more attractive in the workforce. Um, but that all dissipated, and what we found is just people uh, were incapable because the demands for money were so great. They had families, they were, you know, child care and a thousand other problems kept people from enrolling. And I saw our enrollment go down and down every year that I was there, I think from my, my 11th year until I left in 2017. What impact is this pro program, the Mass Reconnect program, going to have on enrollment generally and therefore on employment for professors and staff and custodians and everyone else that makes a community college work? Yeah. So we also saw a drop during the COVID years, and that is starting to come back. And I believe here at GCC anyway, as of last week, with interest in this program, we have seen an increase of 12% in our enrollment for this coming fall. So that is really exciting. And you're absolutely right, Buzz. One of the barriers to education, especially for older students, because they are working full time, they have lives, they're supporting themselves. Some of them may have families. You know, affordability was a real barrier. The cost was a barrier. And even when they were applying for financial aid, low to middle income wage earners were only eligible for like a couple hundred dollars to pay for their education. For some of them, that wasn't enough when you're dealing with rent and food and transportation. This now says if you're a Massachusetts resident and you were generally left out of free money to help with college before, this is for you. So this is opening up doors to hundreds of students who were left out of these dollars in the past, and it most likely really did prevent their ability to either continue or to even come maybe full time. You know, a lot of these students really put some of their earnings in jeopardy if they had to come here and then reduce their work hours and pay for college. This is really going to level out that playing field to make it easier for them and accessible for them. And, you know, we're the affordable, like I have said many times already in this conversation, we are the affordable option, but you have to be able to afford us in the first place. You have to be able to pay that $2,500 tuition and fee bill for one semester and your rent and all the other demands that you have as somebody in your 20s. We are speaking with Linda Desjardins. She is the Director of Financial Aid at Greenfield Community College. After this quick break, we're going to find out more about Mass Reconnect and the potential this has for dramatically affecting to the benefit of everyone in the Commonwealth how we all live together thanks to our community colleges. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
Are you at a dead end when it comes to dealing with that awful joint pain? So was Rick Rawlings. I did a year and a half of steroidal injections in my shoulders, both shoulders. They weren't helping at all, and it was just a Band-Aid. As for the constant pain medication prescriptions... I didn't get any relief. I didn't get any sleep, so I just stopped taking them. I didn't want to get hooked on drugs. But one day... I heard a uh, commercial on the radio about QC Kinetics. Rick called QC Kinetics and learned all about natural biologic therapies, non-surgical treatments that actually help the body restore damaged joint tissue. And it was life-changing. After doing the QC Kinetics, I feel like I have a new life again. Today, my shoulders feel wonderful. My only regret was I wish... I had done it sooner. From dead ends to new beginnings. Call today and learn about QC Kinetics long-lasting relief. Call QC Kinetics 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Environmental nonprofit, Ocean River Institute, is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise down by as much as 25%. Please visit OceanRiver.org for more information on opportunities to make a difference and go the distance for savvy stewardship of a greener and bluer planet Earth. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation about Mass Reconnect, the new Healy Administration program, a free community college for Massachusetts residents 25 and older. Linda Desjardins is the Director of Financial Aid at Greenfield Community College. So could you tell us, Linda, please, what you expect to happen with regard to the uh, number of students at GCC. I suppose we should ask you how many are there now in the various programs, uh, including days, nights, weekends, s- summer programs and the like, uh, and what you think Mask Reconnect will look like and what it, how it will affect GCC in the next year or two. Sure. So on average, <clears throat> our class who is a, who are generally enrolled full-time and maybe um, in credit courses, so in academic programs or certificate programs, um, it's about 2,000 students a year. And um, if we're already up 12%, right, that's 240 additional students. And of course, the fall term hasn't started yet. There's still time for students to apply. There's still uh, time for students to get help with FAFSA and find out more information about this program. That acronym, that's the Federal Financial Aid it is. Form. So it's it's what we call FAFSA, 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 and it stands for Free Application for Federal Student Assistance. And at GCC, we help students do this every day. They don't need to make an appointment. We'll come to you. You come to us. We're very flexible about that, but we offer assistance all year round for students and families who are filing the application. So tell us how to find you. Student says, I'd like to get a certificate. I'd like to be trained as a nurse. I would like to be trained as an engineer. I'd maybe like to go on to a four-year college. How do they find you? 
So just come to the GCC main webpage. Financial aid is on a banner front and center. And if you're looking for information about the Mass Reconnect program in particular, just come again to the GCC main webpage and just search Mass Reconnect and the website will come in. We're collecting your information and we're getting back to you with any questions. Bill, I just want to point out one thing. For any listener who's concerned about the cost of $20 million, the budget in Massachusetts for fiscal year 2024 is $56 billion. This is an infinitesimally small amount of that budget going to change lives. Yes, and it's a new program, so we expect to really see it funded more and more in the future. And again, people say, I want to change my life for the better. I want to improve my financial possibilities. I want to improve my life. This is an extraordinary potential uh, for them, this new program. Absolutely. This is for them. You know, education will impact students' lives, and nobody does it better than a community college. That's what we do every day. Linda Desjardins, thank you so very much. Sorry I'm stumbling over your name, but I really appreciate your work, and I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so much for inviting us today. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. Hi, this is Tom from 4-H. What will the next 100 years look like for today's youth? According to the 4-H members of Hampshire counties, there are no limits. Youth, supported by adult 4-H club leaders, are being prepared to take on any role they can imagine. Astronaut, director, hockey player, surgeon, engineer, and CEO. These are just some of the roles that a recent survey shows that our 4-Hers not only dream about, but are preparing for. Join the 4-H team. Call me, Tom, at 413-545-0611. WHMP North. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And uh, we are really pleased. We have a guest that I am so grateful uh, uh, for his uh, coming to appear on today's show because so much of the news has been, well, it's been Amherst-centric, particularly the schools in Amherst. We have uh, uh, a spate of resignation from a number of different school committees. Um, uh, They are Peter Demling, of the Amherst and Amherst Pelham uh, School Committee of Allison McDonald, who chaired the uh, Amherst School Committee, Sarah Hall, who uh, of the Pelham School Committee, she was the chair, and Ben Harrington, who's joining us today of both the Amherst School Committee and the Amherst Pelham School Committee. It is a spate of resignation, and what is going on in Amherst? Uh, and Pelham. So, Ben Harrington, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So, I guess where I want to start, as somebody who's not an Amherst resident, is could you explain why so many different school committees and what their respective jurisdiction is? Yep. So, uh, 
I'll start with the Amherst School Committee, which basically has jurisdiction over the all of the elementary schools and, and does the, the planning and policies for those schools. Then the, up the hill, you have uh, the Pelham Elementary School Committee that deals just with Pelham Elementary. Then we have the Amherst Pelham Regional School District that, that deals with the, um, the middle school and the high school and consists of like the surrounding towns there. And also we have the Union 26 Committee, which deals with the hiring and firing, I suppose, of the uh, superintendent. That's a lot of meetings. Yes, tons of meetings. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you have recently resigned. I have read your uh, somewhat eloquent uh, resignation letter. I'm just going to uh, quote one piece of it before I allow you to bring us uh, into the details of what led up to your resignation. You wrote this in your resignation letter. Uh, were we going to address all of the cultural issues playing out in that building, referring to middle school building? If so, we could probably start to unpack a great deal of what I and pretty much every, anyone else who's on the outside looking in have seen as our biggest problem. This town, Amherst, believes its own hype and that in and of itself, and that in and of itself is why we will never actually become the, quote, <laughs> I love, woke-topia we sell ourselves at. In other words, we aren't woke, we're sleepwalking, and we're calling that a reality. That was a pretty powerful statement. What yeah. did you mean we're sleepwalking and we're calling that a reality? And if you could take us back to where this tumult began with some students in the student newspaper at the middle school. Yeah, so, so I'll go backwards there. So the, 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 the idea that, that we're not living up to, the, to what we sell that, that's probably what bothers me the most. And, and to be fair, I didn't just walk away from the school committee. I walked away from all things Amherst. I, I was also the chair of the Human Rights Commission. I walked away from that last month as well. But yeah, I, I think you have a lot of folks that have this self-congratulatory feeling of wokeness, like that like you can just call yourself woke and then I'm going to ignore the fact that you say problematic things and do problematic what things. What does woke mean to you? So, so I come from a, a southern family. Like, like my family's from Alabama, and there's a saying. I, I, I think Lead Belly actually talks about it in the uh, Scottsboro Boys song in the 1930s. But my, like my great uncle used to always say, every time we would travel down south, stay woke and watch out for them folks. So basically, it's it's being aware of the folks that were that were adversarial to actually African Americans specifically back in the day and today. And and I think. Like the uh, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of revived it, and and, and used it as as a, another term for like conscious, socially conscious. And for listeners who don't know, you are in fact African American. Yes, right. So it's in that context that you're viewing this these uh, observations, right? Yep. So, um, what did you mean by we're sleepwalking and calling it reality? Yeah, I, I think people are, are probably just. I want to be nice and say that, that people are unaware of their problematic behavior. For instance, when, when we talk about this situation, we're, we're dealing with a very real matter of bullying, right? There was adult bullying, student-on-student -student bullying, and the response to that was to attempt to sort of bully public officials into acting in, in ways that, that these folks wanted, it to, wanted us to act, whether that's what we were supposed to do or not. I'm sorry, we have to just tell folks what that history was. With respect to bullying and then yep. with respect to the LGBTQ plus uh, issues that arose in the middle school. Yep. So um, I'll say this carefully. There are like legal implications here. But um, so there were allegations that, that these guidance counselors 
we're, we're engaging in, in uh, quite frankly, bullying behavior directed at specifically non-binary students. And, and I think there were, some, there were also some transphobic comments that were, were alleged to have been made. And um, it was like an ongoing matter and that, that resulted in a Title IX complaint being filed on April 14th. Right. And um, Dan? Well, I have a, a question about this. Since I'm, I'm hearing, I'm reading your, your letter and hearing from you now, it makes me think that there's like multiple different like interest groups, right? So there's like the students where I think everybody serving on the committee is trying to do best by, yeah. but oftentimes not succeeding. So you have that. But then there's also like the teachers and, and the teacher unions, I guess they're representing the teachers that feel like, hey, we haven't been getting the increases. There was like a two-year negotiation and danger that. So I feel like, that, can you explain those dynamics? And then also, I'm sure the parents, which yeah. I'm sure from Amherst, maybe I am wrong about this, uh, are, is a challenging place to serve because they feel like their kid is not getting either the, the education and protection that they expect from the school committee, given, all, like you were saying, all the words they're talking. Can just talk about a little bit of that? Uh, I guess you're in the middle trying to placate so many different groups and you're trying to manage the schools and all of that. Right. Right. It's, it's difficult because you, you have limitations as a school committee. And, mm. and so on the one hand, I absolutely hear the, the parents that wanted us to take some sort of action. The problem is we were limited as to what we could do, right? Mm. The, 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 uh, there was a big push for us to, to put the superintendent on administrative leave. Mm -hmm. The regional school committee can't do that. Right? Mm. Like if you look at all the other actions that have happened, like, like the separation agreement, it took mm. two different bodies to do that, right? Mm. And I, I don't think a lot of folks had the patience to hear that, that we weren't able to do that. Mm. We also had to wait for the facts of the matter to come out, right? Right. Due process is right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I, I, I think just the idea that, that we would forego due process in order to appease the people who screamed the loudest, I, I don't think that that was realistic that we were going to do that. But it doesn't change the expectation, right? Sure. And sure. in Amherst, like, the, you have the saying, the only thing silent in Amherst is the H. Mm -hmm. I'm not even sure the H is silent at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Bill. So, Ben Harrington, I'd be interested in this. Uh, if, it's a little bit of a personal question, but you are a person who has an intimate knowledge of how Amherst works, how the school systems work. You have a perspective that's very valuable. And it's a crisis time, it seems to me, for the school systems with the resignations, first the leaves and the superintendent uh, going and coming. Uh, why leave? Why not stay and fight? That's a, that's a great question. So I think I've given up on Amherst. I lost faith in the town in general. It's not just the, the school district, but I, I think the problem is that, is that we've had an issue for quite a long time before I even stepped on to the school committee, and it's cultural. And I think right now it, it, it's going to take drastic action for people to look in the mirror. And I, it, to me, I'm, it's worth sacrificing my my political career or aspirations in order to get people to actually see themselves in like full color vivid hd because i don't think if we just keep walking through like i said sleepwalking right i don't think anything will change i'm not not positively so hmm. so what do you personally want to do you say you're walking away um you're going to move Really? No, you're going to stay. Um, but what does that mean to walk away from the town for you? And more specifically, 
Can you tell us what do you want the town and the school committees to do now? Well, right now I want the town to like actually have a moment of self-reflection and like do that in a in a, a very real way, not sugarcoat it, not not put up you know your Black Lives Matter sign on the lawn and now you've cured racism because we're good at that in Amherst, right? Like posturing and posing, but I I really want folks to look at themselves for who they are and think about becoming what we say we are, right? Like, like I say, Woketopia, like this idea that, that everyone is socially conscious and you know everyone is, is aware and, and doing the right thing at all times, it's garbage and I want people to acknowledge that, right? And, and you know, to, to add, I really am walking away from Amherst. Like I, I'm planning on moving and taking my child out of our schools because that hasn't been a positive experience for him with me being in my role. Hmm. And that's probably actually the biggest catalyst for me to walk away. Well, how, so, how, how is this self-reflection, um, how do you see it as happening? What do you think, see it as, I mean, will these resignations result in people really looking hard at themselves and their uh, aspirations for their children and their children's school? Do you, I mean, h- how do you think that's actually going to happen? Well, I think some folks will. I, I like I say, I've lost faith. So I don't know that the majority of people will. I definitely believe in the saying, like, you get the government you deserve. So the folks that have been out there yelling and screaming about how we aren't doing the right thing, I absolutely hope that they get what they deserve at the end of this. And at the end of that, that's when I think self-reflection will come, when people realize that you can't do the things that you're yelling and screaming for us to do, and you can't model bullying behavior and expect to solve bullying. There are all these little subtensions going on. You've alluded to a couple of them. You alluded to the separation agreement. Yep. That's with the superintendent. Bill referred to him as coming and going. And in fact, that's what happened. He yep. he went, then he came back, and then he's gone again. And there was a severance uh, agreed to uh, with the district that uh, some people are saying is far too generous and, and uh, are critical of. Yep. Um, there is the his former deputy who was in charge of uh, uh, I guess inclusion and equity, yep. and uh, she is she has a, a petition before the Massachusetts Commission Against Discrimination, claiming that she was discriminated against. She is an African American, and is claiming that she was treated unfairly. We have these resignations. Uh, I guess my first question is: Did the four Peter Demling, Allison McDonald, Sarah Hall, and you did you speak to each other? Is this like a mass resignation, or did you each do it independent of each other? I think there was like a cascading effect because to be perfectly honest i decided like last winter that i absolutely wasn't going to run for school committee again and then then i kind of engaged in this so i ran like my own basketball camp and i went to this other basketball camp that's really not about basketball it's about like building yourself up and out but so i came away from these like really positive experiences back to back and and like i got like inundated with the all of these angry emails and i kind of started to like self-reflect personally self-reflect that this wasn't, I wasn't directly helping any kids, right? You create policy, you, you evaluate the superintendent and you deal with the budget. You don't have those meaningful connections with kids. And so that was my catalyst initially for walking away. And once I made that decision, it's like the, the, uh, the vitriol got worse and worse and worse and worse. So instead of waiting until like realistically today was when I was going to walk away. And as soon as we set up the meeting to basically uh, separate with the superintendent. That was the moment that I decided to 
This is Dan. Uh, you know, one of the things hearing from you now makes me think, you know, you, you said that there needs to be like a, a cultural shift uh, in the town. Um, but I also am curious, like, uh, you know, how does that um, get done, I guess? Um, I guess is this period of, of self-reflection? Because I'm thinking, you know, uh, people might think that, like, look, these individuals have left and we don't need self We'll get new individuals and they'll use these tactics. I guess my question here is, it, it, do people really understand the powers that exist within the school committee? Is that a part of the culture? It's like they don't actually understand what powers you do and do not have. And you get the attacks even when you don't have any levers on this very issue. You just, you're just somebody that they can yell at and scream at so they feel better about themselves. Oh, 100%. That's, that's I mean, I would say 90% of the criticism we receive, we, we receive are reflective of the fact that these people don't, well, that the peop, a lot of the people making these, these claims don't actually know what it is that we do. It's like the people who speak the most and the loudest are the people who know the least. Least. And it's, wow. it's difficult to operate in, in that kind of world. And I've kind of, throughout my tenure on the school committee, I've kind of prided myself in, in kind of, I don't want to say playing the middle road, but... but right. You know, you were also the chair, right? I mean, you yeah. could talk a little bit about that. I mean, uh, that takes an additional level of responsibility within the school committee. Did you uh, did you see yourself doing that uh, when you started off? Like you wanted to be the chair? Or was that something that you just kind of eventually wanted to take on? No, I, I had no desire to be the chair, especially the, like the chair at the time. Like he was super confident, knew everything. I, I mean, you know, I, I would watch him kind of kind of do his thing and think like, yeah, I, I could never do that. And then the person who took the chair after they left, because the last chair of the regional school committee also left midterm. Uh, th there's no way that I wanted to do that. I didn't, I didn't want to necessarily be the lightning rod, and then I just kind of got nominated and elected. Hmm. Bill, you have a uh, question for Ben Harrington. I do. I have two questions, but I think we're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, I have two questions I really want to ask. One is, what is the vitriol really all about? And secondly, how will all these resignations and vacancies affect the students in the Amherst Pelham Regional School District? We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. At Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity, we believe in a hand up, not a handout. Habitat's mission to provide home ownership opportunities to low-income families is unique as it requires partner families to work alongside the many volunteers that are reaching out to help them. Each Habitat partner family provides at least 250 hours of sweat equity 
or physical labor toward the construction of their own home, other Habitat family homes, and special projects. We believe this shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder joint effort results not only in a better finished house, but that this shared work experience makes for a better community. If you believe everyone should have a decent place to live, that home ownership brings strength and stability to families, and that everyone deserves the opportunity for a better future, we could use your support. We're Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. We build homes, hope, and community in both Franklin and Hampshire counties. Learn more today. Please visit us at pvhabitat.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Ben Harrington, who chaired the Amherst Pelham uh, Regional School Committee um, and was a member of the Amherst School Committee. And uh, Bill, you had a question or two questions for Ben before we took a break. I did. Let's start with this one. There have been a number of resignations. There are now a number of vacancies and top positions in the school systems in Amherst and Pelham. Uh, how is this going to affect the students, the staff? But mostly, I want to know, how will it affect the students? Yep. The, uh, the answer is very minimally. It, the, the school committee doesn't have a lot to do with day-to-day -day operations whatsoever. And um, so I, I also work in the district. Like, I work as the assistant facilities director. And, I mean... There hasn't even been like a bump in the road in terms of how everything plays out. I think that the bigger impact will come from not having a superintendent and, and having a, a, an interim superintendent for the beginning of the school year. But I know, Ben, okay. Ben Harrington, that um, it's a school committee that negotiates with the unions and, and not just the, the, the faculty, but also the paraeducators and maintenance and yep. all, of, all of those people who are collectively... Uh, bargaining, yep. um, it must have an impact on them, doesn't it? Down the road, like the uh, the composition of the school committee at the point when they go to negotiations will absolutely affect how negotiations work. Well, if, if I may add a comment here, this is Dan, uh, you know, from what I've heard from you, you, you mentioned this very quickly. You said you were sort of a, a moderate force in the school committee, because I know there's a lot of different opinions and viewpoints about how to make this change that everybody seems to agree on, but not necessarily how to get there. Yep. And I think that's going to be a huge miss not having you there, because I did hear that from you. You were able to bring people together, all sides, you're sort of that exemplary person on the school committee that could sort of navigate the complex interests at play within the school committee and a loss like you, I think is going to have detrimental effects on the school committee. So that's just from a person, you know, I don't, I barely know you, but <laughs> from what I've heard about you in the school committee, that was the role you had played. Yeah. And, um, and I know there's always tumult going on in the schools because, you know, things are happening to students that shouldn't be happening. But, um, you know, from what I've heard, I just wanted to express that. Bill. I'd like to go back to something we talked about a few minutes ago, and that is the vitriol. And I'd like to better understand what it is it all about. Who is motivated to try to accomplish what? Or is this just personalities uh, uh, making themselves big on the stage? I think there is a lot of that. Like, um, I think it was the last time I ran. Yeah, when I ran for re-election, I wrote this whole piece on the side I chose. And the side I chose was not one or the other. Like you, you have the uh, the battling political ac action committees in in town, and and you have these. So basically, you have these schools of thought, right? And depending on the issue of the day, 
they'll they'll take sides against each other. And and I I definitely think that there are people who ha- who are directly impacted by this issue and others that are that are out there speaking. But I think a lot of the the unreasonable conversation has come from folks who have been arguing with each other for for years since before I got to Amherst. Like the uh, a lot of the people yelling for the superintendent to be removed or placed on admin leave have been yelling that since he took his his position seven years ago, hmm. right? That so a lot of the a lot of the faces weren't Arling. surprises to me. Yeah. But yeah, and I think that's not. I don't. I don't think I have. I don't have the answer to solve it. I also lost the will to to solve it. I, I think I said something about that in my in my statement. This this is a y'all problem at this point, not a me problem. It's not my work to fix that. Well, Bill um, Ben ends his his four page resignation letter with, as of August twenty first, twenty twenty three, I am no longer a member of the Amherst School Committee or the Amherst Pelham Regional School Committee, and I could not be happier about that fact. Wait, wait, can you also talk about your time also at the Human Rights Commission? Uh, you, you talked about, you left that as well. Did you feel that the same things were happening there that was happening in the school committee? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, not so much on the, the, the commission, but, but with a lot of the folks that we dealt with, which, again, were a lot of the same voices that we hear yelling loud. Like, there, there, were, there would be issues, and, and, and people would, like, champion the, the cause, but after a while, the issue itself was lost. Right, like there was mm-hmm. there was a matter with um, the police where where an officer told a, a, a teenager that that they didn't have rights, right? And that that was captured on video, and it it was actually corrected was actually, on the spot, right? Like another officer was jumped in and said, "No, no, 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 that's not the it's mm-hmm. not the case," right? So, so yes, that was absolutely a negative interaction, but it got like mushroom clouded into this this huge situation that it wasn't. And I think that that detracted from situations like that. People deal with actual police violence. Mm-hmm. That was a that, that was a mistake that turned into like, I don't I don't know a, a false civil rights moment. Mm. Um, and and can you also talk a little bit about uh, the actual powers that the Human Rights Commission? I mean, I think people hear that like they're given a lot of rights and they can do a lot of things, but I actually know they don't have a lot of authority and power to make change. It's more about highlighting issues. But can you talk a little bit about that? What does the Human Rights Commission do? Yeah, that was, that was probably the most frustrating part is that people would come to us with with like bona fide issues, issues right? right? And we would basically just say we can make a statement on that. You know, we had a lot of wonderful events like I, I won't downplay like like you know the importance of, of like the awareness side but we basically championed human rights we didn't directly defend human rights mm-hmm. and so that that part was frustrating it's, it's, it's frustrating to be in a, in a position that that people view you as, as having the ability Authority to create change right right, right. Well, that makes and me think of the school yeah. committee that you've been talking yes. about right they think that you have all this amazing power and that you can go and change the schools and protect the kids and have this whole authority right and the truth is you have actually a lot limited powers right. to actually make that change and people just don't know that but you get all the incoming attacks because right. you're a public and elected official and, and like like when it came to the middle school that was the most mm-hmm. frustrating part for me is like i my office is in the middle school my son was in the middle school i coached the middle school basketball team mm-hmm. and in all of those things i had had way more of a direct impact than I did as the, the school, school committee, committee chair. Most of the kids in the building didn't even know what I did. Mm. They knew but, I was in the newspaper, though. But, <laughs> Bill, you were asking Ben earlier about, so now we have a leaderless school committee. We have, we have this massive turnover, and in whatever function the school committees, plural, did, 
in Amherst, Pelham, and for the Regional School Committee and for Union 26. They're leaderless now. Um, it, isn't that a precarious place to leave them? Sort of. So in, in terms of, of leadership, when, it, when I stepped away, I think I would have felt differently if I had a different vice chair at the time. But, but Sarah Best Kenny, is, like she, I think she's very much on point. She has her finger on the pulse, so to speak, and, and that, that's who ended up being the chair now. So I, I think I left them in good hands. I just left them with less hands, I guess. It's probably the way to say it. Mm. Uh, Bill, um, do you have a last question for Ben? Yeah, I would like to ask your opinion, your perspective. What will allow the school committee, as reflective of the town, to come back to some kind of equilibrium that will allow the town to be a better place to live and the schools a better place to educate? Yeah, I think modeling the behavior that we want to see would probably be best. There, there was, when I, when I first came on the school committee, there were people that I was, that I ran against, right? <laughs> that were my enemies, I guess, at, at one point. But um, we found a way to actually like work together. That hasn't been the case in this last iteration. And I, and I think kind of modeling civil discourse in a civil manner, that's probably a great place to start. And Ben, can you also talk about the budgets for schools? And does the school committee get to determine those budgets, or is that determined by the town? Can you, can you talk about that? Yeah, so it's a little different for Amherst than it is for the region. So the region depends on, there's like this big four-town meeting. It's not like a big four-town. There's a, a meeting of the all the towns that, that constitute the region. And and so we, we approve what comes out of that, right? Like first you have to figure out, you know, how... Uh, how much each town is going to pay, like what percentages, that that sort of thing, mm -hmm. and then everything gets approved. But but all of the details of the budget are brought to the school committee to for approval. Right, right. Like you know, each department would come to the school committee. So that that part still isn't there. isn't there. Well, the reason I asked that question is, you know, I was actually paying attention to the school committee back a, t a month or two ago, maybe it was in May. Um, what I heard was that there's some really big financial challenges happening to the school that, that the school committees haven't addressed, which is almost a $2 million deficit for a bunch of reasons. A lot of people can't afford to live in Amherst, and those who can oftentimes don't have kids. So the school, pop, the school kid population is decreasing, and that's a, something that's been kicked down, you know, they say kicked down the, kicked the road, um, and nobody's addressing it, and now with the school committee having um, other issues come up, can't address the bigger financial challenges that I think the schools are, are facing. Can you just, in the last minute or so, can talk about what challenges do you see them happening besides the ones that we've been made aware of already? Yeah, like everyone keeps talking about the, the fiscal cliff. So, so we were shored up by like ESSER money, by federal grant money, for a while there. That money has run out, so by the next fiscal year, what we were, we're going to see that, that gap right away. That I think it's like a million. It's a million and a half, dollar. or yeah. close to two? Okay. Yeah. Already for next school budget, essentially, the next school committee will have to address that financial challenge. Yep, right away. Right away, yep. right? There's no extra money, there's no COVID money, there's nothing extra from the government to patch it up. Yep, we don't get more money from the state for losing federal money. Or for losing that federal is, money. That, well, that, that's a guaranteed gap. Ben Harrington, there's just so much more we could talk about, but we are uh, out of time. Uh, however, this is a story that we're going to continue covering on Talk to Talk um, tomorrow. Wednesday, we'll be talking to uh, recently resigned Amherst School Committee member Peter Demling. And on Thursday, we'll be talking to resigned Amherst School Committee chair 
Allison McDonald, and we will be in touch with Sarah Hall, who is a Pelham School Committee chair as well, who recently resigned, and will continue to look at this and see um, what we can learn from it, what we can all learn from it. But I want to thank you so much, Ben Harrington. Thank you for your, your service, and thank you for coming in and talking to us today. Thank you for having me. We will be right back. We're going to be talking about MGM Grand in Springfield, just celebrated a fifth birthday anniversary, and we're going to be talking to Les Bernal, the uh, national director of the Stop Predatory Gambling, right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Business is on hold for the Amherst School Committee. With the most recent resignation from member Peter Demling, the committee no longer has a quorum. Currently, only two seats out of five are filled after Demling, Allison McDonald, and Ben Harrington all stepped down over toxic conditions. Superintendent Michael Morris is also departing in what was called a mutual decision. Irv Rhodes, acting chair, tells Mass Live the schools will continue to operate, but he doesn't expect the Amherst committee to be able to function until October. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner is facing one challenger in the upcoming election, City Councilor Virginia DeSorger. Mayor Wiedegardner says that she feels she has a good track record to campaign on. Well, I am completely focused on my campaign. I'm not overly concerned about uh, the competitor's campaign. Mayor Wiedegardner spoke about some of her biggest accomplishments. The crown jewel, in my mind, is the skate park, because we didn't have a skate park. And that was one of my initial campaign promises. Addressing a staffing shortage at the Greenfield Police Department was another hurdle for Wiedegardner's administration. I mean, the chief always would prefer to get people who were fully trained and just needed to go through the city of Greenfield Police Department training. But sometimes it just doesn't work out that way. A mayoral debate will take place on Tuesday, October 3rd at 7 p.m. between Wiedegardner and Virginia DeSorger. An investigation in an apartment building in Hatfield Sunday night led to one person being taken away by ambulance, their current medical status unknown. Police officers were conducting an investigation at 151 West Street, some armed with rifles. More updates to come as information on the investigation is released. Your 22 News forecast, partly sunny for today. Some showers possible tonight, 79 for the high. For tomorrow, mostly cloudy with showers and a high of 79. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed and get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Wildwood Barbecue? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Ribs, brisket, and pulled pork smoked low and slow. 16 rotating craft beer taps. Inspired creative specials from a scratch kitchen. Wildwood Barbecue on Route 9 in Hadley is the real deal. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Sales of the new weight loss drug Ozempic are surging, but the drug's manufacturer warns that counterfeit versions of the drug are flooding the market. Novo Nordisk says these knockoffs not only are ineffective, but they may contain harmful ingredients since they are not tested. CVS has agreed to settle a class-action lawsuit brought against its store-brand Maximum Strength Lidocaine products. 
patches, creams, sprays, and roll-ons. Plaintiffs charge the products don't work. CVS disputes that, but has agreed to a $3.8 million settlement. The number of product recalls fell slightly in the second quarter of 2023 from the first three months of the year. According to the Sedgwick Brand Protection Recall Index, there were 856 recalls in the second three months of the year. That's down slightly from 863 in the first quarter of the year. I'm Mark Huffman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to Talk the Talk. Uh, we are uh, here in uh, Western Massachusetts, where MGM Springfield, uh, the casino um, in the center of Springfield, um, just uh, celebrated, I suppose, its uh, fifth anniversary from its opening on, I believe, August 24th of 2018. With us on the show today is Les Bernal. Les is the national director, and he has been for... I think a decade and a half of Stop Predatory Gambling, a national organization that, well, uh, attempts to achieve exactly what its name says, Stop Predatory Gambling. Les, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning to you and your listeners. So you have this long history with, uh, with trying to um, soften the blow, the damage that's done by gambling. But I first wanted to talk to you a little bit about who you are and let our listeners know you're a Massachusetts guy. Uh, you have uh, worn a number of hats, not just the Stop Predatory Gambling leadership uh, hat, but you also were the chief of staff of a Massachusetts state senator. When was that and who was that? Yeah, so from 1999 to uh, 2007, I served in the Massachusetts state senate as a chief of staff to a state senator from the Lawrence Andover region named Sue Tucker. And she was the one that introduced me to the issue of, you know, what we describe now as predatory gambling. We, it was the issue of casinos coming into Massachusetts, and she was a leading statewide opponent to it. And that's where I first got exposed to the issue. It was on a whole different career track. Uh, and then I just, you know, really, le- more I learned about this problem, you know, to me, it's, it's America's most neglected major problem in our, in our country. And, and I think when we're, hopefully when we're done here today, your listeners will agree uh, why it needs to be addressed. Well, maybe we should go there. Let's go there. Why do you say it's one of America's largest problems? Well, today, commercialized gambling, advertising, and marketing. So whether you're talking state lotteries, regional casinos like you have at MGM, and now online gambling has become the public voice of American government to citizens in almost every single state in our country. It's what we advertise and market to the American people more than anything else. So, you know, when I was a kid growing up in the 1970s, they used to run ads with John Wayne coming out on camera and he'd say, you know, invest in your country, buy U.S. savings bonds. But, you know, today we have half the country, you you know, has virtually no assets whatsoever. They live literally paycheck to paycheck. You have, you know, people from the political left and the political right have all these ideas on how to, you know, expand the middle class and provide opportunity. Well, if, you, if we just meaningfully addressed how outrageous the role of predatory gambling is in, in America today, particularly here in a state like Massachusetts, where citizens in 2022 lost $2.5 billion of personal wealth 
to government sanctioned gambling, which is a government program. They're pushing, I live in the poorest city in Massachusetts. They're pushing $50 scratch off tickets in every street corner in a community where citizens make minimum wage. Okay. You know, online gambling now is, is coming into every living room and, and bedroom in our state, courtesy of, of state government. It's, this is a business that's only legal when you partner with the state. And, and I, I think one, and one key factor I want to make sure your listeners understand here, there's a difference between when we say predatory gambling, we're defining it when, when gambling is being run as a business for profit. It's being commercialized gambling. So if you have Friday night poker games or the Super Bowl office pool or you go golfing or bowling and you have a friendly wager, you know, that's social gambling. Predatory gambling is when government is openly you know, partnering with these powerful gambling corporations to essentially you know, cheat and exploit citizens because that's what the business model is the reason why you and i can't run our own state lottery or can't run our own casino is because inherently there's an adversarial relationship between the gambling operator and the citizen so it's the only business where there's an adversarial relationship they're trying to take you down you know like so and that's because it's a form of consumer financial fraud just like price gouging and false advertising both of which are illegal as is you know, commercialized gambling is illegal unless you partner with the state, as long as the state's getting a cut of those tax revenues. And, and it's become literally our economic solution to any poor community in our state, in our country, whether it's Springfield or any other place. You know, it's, it's become the favorite revenue source now. It's, instead of having a meaningful discussion of how to raise public, re pay, raise revenues for public services or cut, cut budgets, it's all, about, oh, you can have everything. We're just going to, you know, we're going to stick it to the poor with $50 scratch off tickets, online gambling, casinos, and all these other gimmicks. Dan, uh, you have a question for Les Bernal, the national director of Stop Predatory Gambling. Yeah. So my question is this. I, I can now gamble on my phone, right? And you can download these apps and, and place bets all throughout the day. I'm curious, is, is that what you're describing here? And then tell me, what are the odds of me winning? Because from my research now on this, those who do end up winning these gamblings, they have uh, statistical models that help them win. And the average consumer, I assume, does not have access to those models. It doesn't know how to develop them. So they end up losing, on average, a lot of money. Can yeah. you talk about that? Yeah, sure. sure. So let me see. So the, the, the online gambling that you're seeing being pushed across the state from companies like DraftKings and FanDuel and so on, MGM is another one, but MGM is another of their uh, MGM's online offering. Like, that's all based on top of the predatory gambling that's come over the last 35 to 40 years in the state. You know, the, the state sanctioned gambling started with like a dollar a week ticket, you know, in most communities. And then they keep, they've elevated it. The higher price points went from to $20 scratch off tickets, $50 scratch off tickets, Keno games, 2000 times a week, you know? And so it just, as technologies change and other aspects of society, gambling operators in partnership with state government said, how can we push these more extremes, more extreme forms of gambling to be more profitable, to make more money for ourselves, you know, and, and use these new technologies to do so. So now they brought commercialized gambling on online. So they've essentially opened a Las Vegas casino right in your bedroom. Okay. So it's extremely addictive. And, and I think it's critical for your listeners to understand that gambling today, commercialized gambling now is recognized as a, as an addictive product under the American Psychiatric Association, DSM-5, just like opioids, heroin, and cocaine, okay? We don't market other dangerous and addictive products. You know, we have, you know anywhere close to the way we market commercialized gambling. And so 
that, that that's why and the only reason why state attorney generals don't touch this like they would purdue farmer or any of these other predatory businesses that operate in our, in our society is because government is a partner to it okay so to, to, which leads into the your next point like somehow these people are winning on these schemes with all due respect man the long term this is designed to get you beat if if, if in the rare event you want to like you know five percent of people that actually make any money against in these uh, commercialized gambling operations, especially online, they actually will shut down your account. They will limit your account. Okay, so this is a business based on losing. You know, it's getting citizens to lose as much money as humanly possible. That's why, as I said, there's an adversarial relationship when you when you run commercialized gambling as a business. You know, they're trying to take you down. So this the scheme, this notion that some people are winning, those are that's it's part of an orchestrated PR campaign put out by the gambling companies because they need to, in, in state lotteries do it as well. You know, a uh, $100,000 ticket was just sold here in Amherst or wherever it may mm -hmm. be. They need to create this myth that people can win. But it's, it's a, you know, commercialized gambling is a financial exchange that's mathematically stacked against you. That's what makes it a form of consumer financial fraud. So, you, and so there's no way long-term you're, you're going to win on this. You're going to get beat. Les Bruno, I, I have a question for you. This is Bill Newman. I understand and I appreciate that the name of your organization is Stop Predatory Gambling, but it seems to me, based on what you have just said, that this train has already left the station because it's not just people who are addicted to gambling, it's government that is now addicted to gambling. And if you look at the statements from the Sarno administration in Springfield, what they say is, well, we just got $20 million from MGM. This is really good for our community and more people should go. And what the study shows, of course, most of the uh, customers for a casino actually come from within 20 miles of the casino or 25 miles. Government is addicted, not just the people. And your thoughts about that? Yeah, well, so your, your point that, you know, that government is addicted to this, uh, there's 100 percent, you know, agreement with that. But this notion that nothing can be done about it, I, I couldn't disagree more strongly, like, you know, you know, you're living, living in a part of the state that probably leans to the political left. So regardless of whether you come from the political left or the political right in this country, like this is, when we say this is America's most neglected major problem, predatory gambling tags along with so many other major issues in our country that people say they care about. So you, you say you care about, you know, increasing people's wages. Well, I'll tell you what, it, it, and this is the words right out of Senator Warren, who made her, who made her claim to fame, you know, as a, as a lawyer on bankruptcy and so on, you know, in the early 2000s, great quote, it's not how much you, you make, it's how much you keep, right? So here you have a government program in every poor community in our country that's exempt from truth and advertising regulations, marketing, hey, don't go save your money in the bank, don't go buy, you know, an S&P 500 index fund and let it sit there for 30 years to build assets. You know, don't build it. Don't have an emergency fund and all the other things that are the hallmarks of middle class and upper class life. Instead, go out and, and buy the scratch ticket that's marketed as this is your fastest way to a million dollars. You know, we, we allow them to market slot machines. Here's where the winners play, even though you're, 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 the machines are designed to get you to lose essentially 10 percent every time you put a dollar in that machine. You're, wager, you're losing, you know, 10 cents every dollar you wager. So you wager, you know, two or three hundred bucks a pop you know, over the course of a night, like you're losing 40, 50 bucks every time you're in that casino. And these people are going in five to six times a week. So if you're someone who's serious about the direction of our country, 
You know, like this is what's this is exhibit A about what's broken about the role of government. Everyone fix, fixates on Trump and all this thing. You think it's a coincidence that Trump ran casinos? You know, like like and no one on the left, on the left, political left has, has has a press conference in Atlantic City. They don't stand up and say, "Look how outrageous this business is." The poverty rate in Atlantic City is higher today in 2023 than it was in the late 1970s. Okay, so it's made things worse. You know, what the left will do in Atlantic City is say, hey, these are union jobs in these casinos. We need to protect them. I mean, it, it's, it's an incredible hypocrisy that both the left has and the right has when it comes to predatory gambling. You want to, you know, and this last key fact on this, over the next eight years in our country, the American people are on course to lose more than $1 trillion of personal wealth to government-sanctioned gambling. Places like MGM, you know, in Springfield and so on, your $50 scratch off tickets, a trillion dollars of wealth. OK, most of which is coming from low income people. If you were just we just cut those losses by 50 percent, 50 percent over the next eight years, that's five hundred billion dollars you put back into the daily lives of mostly low income people in our country. There's no policy reform that comes within a thousand miles from either party. You know that would make more of a difference in people's lives. To just you know scale back these extreme forms of gambling that states are pushing. Well, Les Bernal, we're going to let that sink in while we take a break. We're talking to Les Bernal, the national director of Stop Predatory Gambling, on this the fifth anniversary of MGM Springfield. We'll be right back and continue our conversation with Les Bernal. What do you want to be? You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP, news, information, and the arts. Having pain like that and not knowing how you caused it and for how long it's lasting, it's debilitating. QC Kinetics patient Diane Richardson hated not being able to live her life to the fullest due to joint pain. But then she called QC Kinetics, where regenerative treatments helped her pain go away. The result was phenomenal. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in using natural biologics to restore and repair damaged joint tissue. This was a great alternative for me as opposed to going in and possibly having surgery or something else. There was no downtime, and that's what I love. My life is too busy for me to be sidelined. If you're tired of constant pain from arthritis or injury, don't think the old treatments are the only treatments. Discover regenerative medicine at QC Kinetics. Just to feel good and know that I'm out of pain is the best thing ever. I'm able to do everything that I want to do. Call QC Kinetics now for your free consultation. Call QC Kinetics, 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. 
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farmers are arriving at the co-op every day with summer berries, corn, tomatoes, and watermelon, and endless bounty. At the co-op seafood counter, little neck clams are rolling in. What goes better with corn and tomatoes than sweet, briny little necks? No time to cook today? The co-op makes pizza, sandwiches, burgers, sushi, and smoothies, and they make it all from scratch. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with National Director Les Bernal of Stop Predatory Gambling. And, and so, Les, what should people take away from this conversation? Well, just if you look locally at the MGM in Springfield, like that's been an epic public policy failure. You know, those who were opponents of MGM going into Springfield said the truth back, you know, in, in 2013, 2012, when they were debating this, that it's it, casinos across the country have never proven to, to be an economic development engine. They only show to make the region poorer. And that is true with an exclamation point for the MGM Springfield. It's well, all, all the money that the city gets from that pro, from that casino represents the personal wealth that all of your neighbors have lost, you know. Uh, money of your neighbors. So not, not, a lot of neighbors don't gamble at all, but the, the people that have lost, they've lost big. You know, so you have far more addicts now in, in Western Massachusetts than you did before. You have a lot more poverty than you did before. It, concentrated poverty from citizens who participated in this. It's been an epic policy failure. And, and anything that Springfield invested in and the state invested in for Springfield would have, would have produced revenue. You could have produced, you know, invested in anything that government um, puts money into is usually going to be successful. So the fact that they picked a casino has only benefited MGM and then the political infrastructure that feeds off that system. So you, you know, the mayor's administration and, and the, some of the state pals who have who've been, you know, been the kind of the voices for uh, MGM, you know, they, they've carried the water for them. And, and it's important to know many of your politicians in Western Massachusetts, and this isn't unique to them across the country, and this kind of underscores what a con this is and, and what, what a ripoff it is, is that most of your politicians, you know, they don't gamble. You know, so Stan Rosenberg, who's from your area, carried the water for casinos in Massachusetts, openly acknowledged that he's not a gambler, but it's a great thing for your family and your listeners' families to participate in this. You know, and that kind of underscores what, 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 a, you know, what, what the very nature of this business is. It's, it's a predatory business that feeds on the desperate and addicted. Um, this is Dan. Uh, and we have... Um... Uh, individual rights here in the United States. I always hear about it. This is an individual choice. What do you say to that? To people say, hey, look, this is an option and people have a choice either to do it or not do it. In the one minute we have left. Yeah. So real quick, like people could already gamble in Western Massachusetts. I don't have a license to exploit and cheat people. That's what this business is. People could, you and I could already place friendly wagers with each other on anything we wanted to do. What's been illegal in our country is to run commercialized gambling as a business because it's inherently predatory because it's a, it's, it's a form of consumer financial fraud that rips people off. It's a dishonest business. So people could already do this. It's been an epic policy failure. And if you care about the direction of our country, this is America's most neglected major problem. And, and this, it, every major issue you care about for the most part runs through taking government out of the predatory gambling business. Well, Les Bernal, thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you do for Stop Predatory Gambling, and thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, listeners, thank you for joining us today here on Talk to Talk. Remember, we can't just talk to talk. We also have to walk to walk. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
Do you know a woman of impact? Yes, that was very Nominate eloquent. her now for uh, the Business West Women of Impact Awards, honoring women who are respected for accomplishments in their professional life, who give back to the community, and are sought out as advisors and mentors. Business West is looking for the 2023 Women of Impact. Help Business West discover them. Go to businesswest.com to nominate a woman you know making an impact in the community. The deadline to nominate is September 5th. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com on Northampton.